Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and non-fiction writer. This week on the pod, we'll be discussing the most star-studded film you've never heard of, 1961's Paris Blues, starring Paul Newman, Sidney Poitier, Joanne Woodward, and Diane Carroll. We don't understand why it's not famous either. We'll dive into the world of jazz in the 1960s as seen through a Hollywood lens, discussing Paris as a haven for artists, as a haven for Black Americans in sometimes questionable ways, and the interracial relationships that were written into the film and then cut out. As always, we'll round out things with a game of Mary Fuck Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters from our main love story. In Naf's words, this week is kill, kill, kill. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for The Love Story. This week, we're going to be talking about the 1961 film Paris Blues. Finally. Which (laughs) nobody has ever heard of. So I want to start us out just with a little taste of the trailer. So let's take just a minute and listen to that. Audience, I encourage you to pause, go to the show notes, watch the entire trailer so you can read the bonkers text that accompanies it, and come back. Now that we've all seen the trailer. (laughs) Which has given you an amazing... a great insight into what the movie is like and about. And what they thought they were doing with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, how they thought they could sell it. Or how they hoped it would go, maybe. Let's just say, why have we not heard of this movie? Let me introduce this film to you by saying it stars Paul Newman, Sidney Poitier, oh. Joanne Woodward, okay, and Diane Carroll. I have looked at various pronunciations of her name. I know I should probably be pronouncing the H more, but I'm going to have to do a glottal stop every time. Nobody wants that. Look, we're going to call everybody by their last names. Yes. But there is no lack of respect for Madame Carol, unlike this fucking trailer that didn't even give her her own little fucking title card. I cannot believe it. It's unbelievable. Uh, The soundtrack is by Duke Ellington, and Louis Armstrong makes, like, a pretty long cameo. So my question... (laughs) Amazing, actually. That cameo? Chef's kiss. My question (laughs) is, Naf, can you recast this in the stars of today? (laughs) give you a moment because i tried to do and i was like hugh grant uh hugh grum what the hell yeah i was like hugh Hugh grant tori amos and i was like no i'm i'm really stuck in the 90s somebody who knows culture needs to do this oh stars of today or could i any star of any age no like if if this came out today i'm like maybe lizzo does the soundtrack Oh, Lizzo's soundtrack is great. Um, so wait, it's not a jazz movie if it comes out today then? No, because nobody cares about jazz anymore. It's not as cool. As- well, we have a flute, and flutes are cool. Okay. okay so- Brad Pitt and Idris Elba? Yeah. It's Brad Pitt and Idris Elba. Elba. Yeah, exactly. And then like Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson and Beyonce? Wow. Yeah, but maybe. I mean, like, that's how big Diane Carroll was huge, right? Like, Diane Carroll. No, but it's, you're absolutely right. Maybe it's Beyonce does the music and Lizzo plays the character. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, yeah. I think, like, I'm just saying that for the time, this this had the biggest stars of the day in film and music. And the fact that we have no fucking clue. Well, we have a fucking clue and we're going to tell you. Sorry, can I just clarify Paul Newman, he was at the peak of his fame. Then. We're going to talk about it, but no, he wasn't. Um, a little bit. We're going to talk about it. So <laughs> before we get into anything else, just a little bit of background on kind of the the 
people involved in this. It's directed by Martin Ritt, who was not named by the House for Un-American Activities Committee, but he was mentioned by an anti-communist publication with ties to the FBI. He got blacklisted from TV in 1951 because a Syracuse grocer said he donated money to China, of course, communist. Um, and then he spent five years teaching at the Actors Studio, where he, I believe he met Paul Newman. He eventually uh, formed a production company with Paul Newman, did a lot of work with him, directed things like The Long Hot Summer, mm. Hemingway's Adventures of a Young Man, which let's find what that movie is, um, The Great White Hope, the spy who, in came, who, the spy Who Came In From the Cold, and an unexpected 1979 hit. Can anybody guess what? Give us a hint. The whole point was that this was a socially progressive production company. Last Tango in Paris 2. <laughs> the tangoing. <laughs> Norma Ray. Uh, Would never have guessed that. So, yeah. So they formed Salem Pictures together with the explicit purpose of making films that were socially conscious. Women's own. I know. So by the time they make this film, we have the big four stars mm -hmm. um, really on the upswing but not as famous as they'd later become, I'd argue, with the exception of Joanne Woodward. Had she already won her Oscar at this point? We'll get there. Oh. So Sidney Poitier um, actually ended up being Dion Carroll's partner from 1959 to 1968. I'd really like to point out that in this film, Joey Tribbiani from Friends's um, axiom of people who are already fucking have no tension together because Woodward and Newman are married and the tension's pretty minimal. Now, Poitiers and Carol, we can't know, but they're not officially together for another – oh, shit. This No, they were. No, but they're never officially together, right? Because well, yeah. I mean, 59 to 68, they were kind of right. on again, off again, but this that, that covers this period. So I would say that um, this is actually a film about two couples who were actually couples. Yes. Um, which is interesting to keep, keep in mind. Now, Poitiers, if you're wondering about his slight accent, he was born in the Bahamas. He was born in Miami, even though he's from the Bahamas. Moved to Miami at 15, New York City at, at uh, 16. He was a founding member of the Committee for the Negro in the Arts, the CNA, left-wing organization. It's 1947. I don't think I needed to point that out. He, where he collaborated with Alice Childress, is that how you say your mm -hmm. name? Uh, Lorraine Hansbury. He was friends with Paul Robeson, and with all of this, he ended up getting blacklisted as well. He went in 1951 to film Cry the Beloved Country in South Africa. Did not know that was filmed uh, on location. Did Blackboard Jungle. But he didn't become famous until 1957 when he worked with Martin Ritt on Edge of the City, which I've never heard of. Oh, okay. I haven't seen it, all of that. Um, by 59, he'd originated Raisin in the Sun role with Ruby D on Broadway, uh, but it wasn't until this year, 61, that he did the film. So he's definitely, like, that's definitely what brings him to the mainstream, um, huge stardom. I think probably in retrospect, he's best known for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, right. but he did a lot of... Sure, the Heat of the Night is... As well. Yeah, as well. I just, I think that that's what he won his Oscar for, right? In the heat of the night? Yeah. But I think that if you were, but I feel like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is maybe the movie that has, at least in the U.S., has more of a footprint. You know what I mean? Like, you might not have seen In the Heat of the Night. You definitely understand at least the implications of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. That feels like a genre of movies almost. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And it's also it's also the strange link between old Hollywood with Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, and new Hollywood. Uh, Paul Newman started out as a theater actor. Let me tell you about Paul Newman. He went to the Yale School of Drama. He went to the Actors Studio and studied with Lee Strasberg. He played in Picnic on Broadway, where he met the lovely Joanne Woodward, who astrologers always use as the example of a perfectly matched astrological couple. Uh, what are their signs? <laughs> Which I think says more about astrologers and um, what their interests are than um, who's a kind of like perfectly matched astrologer. Chris, you're fired. Snickety Sagittarius. I actually have, I don't remember what Chris's sign is. <laughs> Chris is a fucking Aries. Um Shows. <laughs> shows, but he's got a Scorpio ascendant, so he'll murder you and laugh about it. <laughs> oh my God, he just did. Yeah, it's, more, it's more like he'll laugh about the idea of murdering you. Anyway, um, 
Yeah, and then, and then somebody's like, hey, you got a pretty good face. Should be seen closer. So he does some film roles. He actually comes to stardom with a film I've never heard of, 56, Somebody Up There Likes Me. Um, <laughs> a memoir. <laughs> and then, of course, 58, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which I'd really like to rewatch as an adult now that I understand that Brick was bisexual. <laughs> I missed a lot as a child. I remember I've watched that movie. I remember nothing about it except being like, these two people are very attractive. <laughs> Why are they so on just fuck each other? Yeah, they're so hot. Um, now, Joe and Woodward had been with Newman since Picnic. Um, they got married in 58. 57 was when she did The Three Faces of Eve and won her Oscar. Uh, do you know what she did in 1960? That was the That was a Hollywood first. She was the first... No, I don't know. <laughs> she had the first star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. No. Yes. Yes. And she had also worked with... Joanne. Martin Ritt before on No Down Payment, 57, and The Sound and the Fury, 59, Quick Prayer for those who had to adapt that fucking book. <laughs> They're like, um, there's some trees? <laughs> There's a clock. There's definitely a clock. <laughs> Have either of you seen the film? No. No. I just I would be very curious if Taylor. No, I kind of want to though. <laughs> I you know, spin-off podcast on horrible adaptations. <laughs> Um, in 1960, she'd just done From the Terrace, which she later admitted to having affection for because she said, I looked like Lana Turner. And I just love. I love this, that. Like this, like no modesty because she is stunning. If you only know Joanne Woodward from Paris Blues, which also question mark, who are you? Um, the haircut that they gave her. Rachel, I need. I actually need at least 75. Travesty. Just to talk about Joanne's goddamn hair. Like, did, did her hairstylist hate her? Yes. Clear. It's the only option. She was like, you get to fuck Paul Newman? Guess what I'm going to do to your hair? That hair is inexcusable. It is unacceptable. At some point, she gets a haircut. Somehow, it makes it worse than it was before. I don't understand. It's a fucking mess. Now, Dion Carroll, she grew up in New York. Do you know where she went to high school? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got a one-track mind, you Yaleys. Boston Latin? <laughs> let's uh, let's just say that she was gonna live forever. She was gonna learn how to fly. <gasps> no, she didn't go to the fame high yeah, school. She went to the fame high school. It's been called different things, oh but it was the fame high school. And I'm super proud of them that they allowed black people to attend in the 1940s. Okay, not what I would have predicted. Not at all. It's an American public school. I was gonna say based on America. Full yeah. stop. <laughs> By the age of 15, she was modeling in ebony. Um, and really came to fame in 1954 at the age of 18 when she was a contestant on a game show called The Chance of a Lifetime, where it was, I guess, like a game talent show. She won a $1,000 grand prize for singing a Jerome Kern Oscar Hammerstein song called Why Was I Born? Dark. Whoa. <laughs> and then won for four weeks more and then started getting booked in New York City nightclubs. Okay. And when major studios began featuring black casts in the 1950s, uh, she was right in there. She was really known for 1954's Carmen Jones, 1959's Porgy and Bess, because, mm -hmm. <laughs> of course, they're like black casts. What can we put them in? Um, later, she would play, and, and again, like a lot of, all of these actors did amazing things later, but I do want to point out that in the late 60s, she played Julia, which was the first black star of a show who was not a domestic worker. Which also makes me be like, what shows were like starring domestic workers before that? What was American culture? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, later then she also uh, played uh, Dominique Devereaux. In Dynasty. In Dynasty. Oh, she's so good. And we love her. She is so good. Okay. So by this point, so um, a lot of these actors have worked with Martin Ritt before. And Salem Productions, Newman and Ritz Company, is producing this. They also get friend of the pod, Marlon Brando, to co-produce. With He's always turning up. Like. With his Penny Baker films. I thought you were going to say with his pennies. With his pennies. Friend of James Baldwin, starred in Last Tango. I'm not surprised. I can imagine him being like a good friend to certain people. Well, I can imagine him being a good friend. I can imagine him being a great enemy, though. That's what I'm saying. That's why I said certain people. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Paul Newman was actually cast after Brando lost interest in the film. And oh. uh, Joanne Woodward was cast after somebody else lost interest in her role. Guess who? Lana Turner. No, close. Turner Lana? <laughs> Turner and Hooch? <laughs> so I just want to speak up here and say that I know almost nothing about 1960s American cinema. Well, you weren't alive like we were. <laughs> no, I mean, but I, I, we're both 24 and 80 at the same time. <laughs> just to sort of like, to, I, I, I don't know if this is a general thing, but I, I find it, it's an in, it occupies an interesting period, right? Because it's not, it's no longer this sort of like Hollywood's golden age, right? Um, and it's almost like the the end of that, as an era so i feel just as a lay person and talking about why perhaps i haven't heard of this film or why i feel a lot of people might not have heard of this film is because it, it falls between the gap of like when hollywood was still doing the sort of like the 1940s 1950s thing and then bef but before it moved into the the sort of 1970s slightly different kind of like new age of cinema like situation and so there and for me it's just it's a whole period and you're naming all of these people and saying that like everybody who should know who they are but personally like I, okay so chris we never said that if you felt that in your mind when you heard it then we never said everyone had to know about them no, I know. I mean, but, um, you know, I, obviously I know Sidney Poitier and I know uh, Paul Newman, but um, I like uh, Joanne Woodward, I think I know the name. Mm -hmm. uh, she was Paul Newman's wife. Right. OK. And Diane Carroll, I had uh, I'd never heard of before. Uh, so that and and I don't think that I'm too unusual in that. Like, no, exactly. And I, it, it's an interesting, um, I feel, blank spot for people who are even kind of like you know which i'm generally interested in mm. cinema but this occupies a real just you know emptiness in my knowledge and i will say and i think it's important to know before we even get into the movie that at least for diane carroll there's definitely i would say a global blind spot when it comes to black women who achieved like celebrity in the like 50s, 60s, 70s, it starts to change, but it is tough, right? Like it's, it's, and that's for a lot of Americans as well. A lot of Americans who would consider themselves rightfully so cinephiles. I do think that it just took a really fucking long time to, to get those names out there and have them be names, right? And have them be, you might not see their movies, but they feel like they are brands, they are trademarks. Diane Carroll is extremely important in American cinema point blank and American music cinema um, and music in general. But at the same time, yeah, for a lot of people, when they finally start to get to know her, it was through Dynasty. And I'll say, look, it's a strange point in American cinema, and I can't claim to know a lot about it because my the area that I, the era that I studied was earlier during the height of the studio system. But I'll say that this is after in 1948 there was a big case against Paramount Pictures for antitrust because the cinemas had total control over the everything from the pre-production production distribution you know they were the total jack donaghy vertically vertically integrated everything and um you know they owned the theaters they owned the you know actors contracts all of this so things start the 50s is still kind of this huge you know glitzy contract you know player era but in the 60s you really start to see Kind of two things happening at once. My mother always describes the 60s as for most of the country. She was from Kansas um, and living in Kansas and then Wisconsin and the, Illinois and Wisconsin in those times. She says for most of the country, the 60s was just a continuation of the 50s. And to some extent, this is true in Hollywood. You have things like My Fair Lady being produced, you know, Camelot, these big, that might have been early 70s, but I think it was late 60s. Um, you know, you have these kind of still continuation of these big budget, you know, glamorous, Hollywood stories. At the same time, you have a lot of edgier stuff, like The Apartment, the Shirley Mac oh, MacLaine movie uh, coming out, which deals with extramarital affairs and uh, abortion and things like that. Um, and so Hollywood doesn't really know what it is at this point. You know, Westerns are dying out, genre films. I, my father would argue me on that, but like in terms of just, I want to go see a Western, people didn't quite do that anymore. Um, so it's this strange time that is this 
gray period, this gray zone where these genres are blending, where new things are coming in, where for the first time, not for the first time, um, but which I'll talk about a little bit more later, but actors are forming production companies and producing what they want to make and what they want to be in and what they want to see, which is leading to creations of things like this movie, you know? And, uh, and so, yeah, it's before, you know, it's before the seventies, it's before Scorsese, it's before, you know, these, uh, these, uh, you know, easy rider and things like that, um, where, it's a really interesting moment, and I'd like to know more about it. Uh, Something else that I was, and again, like th- this is kind of going off, but the, the like something about the the black stars of the time uh, is that because Hollywood is addressing very complicated uh, racial issues which are going on in America, then I wonder if there's a degree to which people are almost uncomfortable watching these movies now because they remind Mm. particularly Americans of a really hard truth about what the country was like and what they're talking about. And so somebody like Diane Carroll, who I I can only really speak for Sidney Poitier, who as I understand it was in a lot of movies, which uh, like directly tackled the the race issue Mm -hmm. and that people almost sort of like, for a long time anyway, and maybe it's changing now, but for a long time wanted to almost ignore that that was a reality of American history. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that Poitiers has perhaps remained more in the public consciousness than Carol's work at this time, because I think Dynasty you know, just really... Uh, What's her, you know, what's her legacy in a lot of ways? And what a legacy. And what a legacy. Okay, Diane, <laughs> you fucking brought that show back. And that is a great show. That the movies that she did in the 50s, they weren't black studios and that they weren't, they were produced by mainstream studios in the sense that they had more money, more distribution, all of that. Um, but really they were the white studios, you know, the studios that had produced films with white people primarily. Um, and I and I will say also that like I think um, my understanding is also that someone like Sidney Poitier. Granted, we talk about Sidney Poitier so much in cinema in general because there were so few black actors. Period. But with a black man, you could kind of fit them into movies with white actors. Kind of. So with an actor like Sidney Poitier, with a black male actor, you could fit them into role. You could fit them into roles alongside white people, specifically white women, by having them be the savior of the white woman. It was tougher to figure out how to fit a black woman into a, into a movie at a time when interracial romance was really either it wasn't allowed in certain states or even when it was, quote, big air quotes, legally okay. Was it morally okay? Was it socially okay? And I know we'll get into that with Paris Blues, obviously. It was just easier and it has been traditionally in American cinema, easier to figure out a way to put a black man in a movie with white people and have them be the sacrificial lamb, right? Have them be in some way like the big bad bouncer who helps the white people out. With black women, black women tend to be, oh, they're kind of exotic. They're kind of dangerous. They're kind of a threat to white women. It's tougher to figure out an anodyne, clean, big air quotes way to fit them into white American cinema. Can they be sexy? Can they be, you know, like where, what's the place for this person? and that's what that, that's the larger point I was making badly earlier is that Diane Carroll was in films with major Hollywood studios that had entirely black casts. And I think that's why her f- film career from this time has not been remembered in the same way as Sidney Poitier's, because he was working with white actors and a lot of very famous white actors, too. And, and very briefly, I just want to say also to your early, earlier point, Chris, about a lot of these movies perhaps being uncomfortable to watch now for Americans, I think part of, uh, agree with, completely with your points, and I would add only that it might be also uncomfortable because actually a lot of the things that we find uncomfortable in those movies persist to this day. And it's really tough, I think. It's one thing to look at history and go, oh, weren't we so shitty back then? We've gotten so much better. But um, as I hinted at earlier, Denzel Washington, who has often been called kind of the torchbearer for Sidney Poitier, which is considered a compliment, in many ways it should be, but he has also played so many roles where he is saving either a white child, a white woman, and dies at the end. I mean, there's this is a trope that has continued with one of our like our biggest black stars up until this day. So it's uncomfortable also because it's like, well, what the fuck? We, we technicolor. Uh, good job. <laughs> we figure out the technology. That's great. <laughs> Absolutely. 
So with all of that in mind, uh, and I think that is really important because this would have been the context in which American audiences were approaching this film back in the day, uh, knowing kind of these star texts, but also where, you know, these stars uh, were in their careers. Uh, let's return after the break to talk about what happens in Paris Blues and how we feel about it. We'll always have Paris. We'll be right back with more of the love story. We'll always have Paris is brought to you by Lingoda. So um, I've always found just learning French just a nightmare. (laughs) (sighs) Let it out. For for so many different reasons. But I I was wondering um, what your kind of like worst horror stories of trying to learn French were. For me, I always loved my classes in high school, but that's because they had the least amount of homework. And (laughs) there were like 30 people in my class, so you almost never got called on, uh, which was great at the time. And in retrospect, I came to France and actually thinking of how to speak in conversations was a totally different thing. Yep. And then for me, it was that in high school, I learned a lot of French words that were either out of date, no one uses them anymore, or they were for terms and concepts that were super complicated. So when I came to Paris and I studied abroad, no joke, I did not know how to say towel. I did not know how to say around or cut. I didn't know really basic vocab. So my host family thought I was uh, the biggest dum-dum for basically the whole time I was living. You also just kept asking if you could go to the disco. (laughs) (laughs) Can I go to the disco juxtaposition dichotomy? That's what I kept saying. Chris, what was yours? Well, I think that the the main thing for me is going to French classes and being really, it's very difficult to find the right level because you can walk into a French class and I find that everybody is, you know, either just you're dealing with very, very simple things and they are still talking about going to the disco or you walk in and uh, you're getting a lesson about Sartre and Camus and, uh, (laughs) you know, and existentialism and and then it, it all goes over your head immediately. So there's actually a really simple solution to this problem, and it is Lingoda, the online language school. Lingoda will give you the French that you need to succeed in the real world and not in some imaginary 1970s uh, abstract academic France. Lingoda offers live online courses. You get a pick your course for that day from a selection of topics. You can take that course either in a group class, which has a maximum of five students, or you can choose to do one-on-one classes. These classes are all taught by native-level teachers, so you get to have really natural, real-life conversations of the kind that you will need when you come to visit France or come to live here like us. You also have the resources of Lingoda's optional online exercises that you can use to reinforce those skills. And now our listeners can have a seven-day free trial During that seven-day period, you can get three free group classes or one one one-on-one class. Then when you sign up for courses afterwards, you get 30% off of your first payment with the code HAVEPARIS30. So do you want to perfect your French in a way that's going to be useful when you're actually in France? Check out the link in our show notes and use code HAVEPARIS30. So Paris Blues is really captured there in the name in both senses. Uh, It's about two American jazz musicians living in Paris. We have Ram, (laughs) rather uh, interestingly chosen name. Paul Newman, who's a white trumpeter, working on a composition called Paris Blues. He's a a trombonist. Whatever. And the movie treats it like that, too, actually. Do you know what? Cliffhanger. I forgot to tell you who was going to play the Joanne Woodward role. It was Marilyn Monroe. But she also lost interest. So this could have been Brando and Monroe. <laughs> We'd be talking about I mean, Honestly, we are talking about it. For Marilyn's sake, I think I'm glad it didn't happen. Like, Marilyn went through enough. <laughs> she didn't need that haircut. She didn't need, she didn't need that haircut. Like Marilyn would let that have happened. She would have been like, excuse me? <laughs> and then there's Eddie, Sidney Poitier, who's a pianist and he's black. Uh, saxophone. He's a saxophonist. Look, I'm not going to lie. I fast forwarded the jazz parts. 
I really don't like jazz. <laughs> Do you know what one of my notes about this movie was? I'm not kidding. Because there's an opening of circa four and a half minutes of just people listening to jazz. What and, is it? In all of their jazz scenes, nothing else happened. And I wrote in my notes, wow, no one looks hot or smart or sexy when they listen to jazz or when they're told you've got to be listening to jazz because everyone has, like, all the extras have a look on their face where they're like, oh, it's jazz music? Oh, let me put on my, insert here, quizzical, insert here, questioning, insert here, insane dancing that has nothing to do with the beat. No one is hot when they listen to jazz is truly the takeaway of Paris Blues. No one. I think that was the original working title. I hope so. Also interesting because the jazz, I mean, the jazz that they put in the movie is quite a, um, like an old fashioned kind of jazz. Well, it's Duke Ellington. So this is a, yeah. So the idea that these guys are supposed to be like cutting edge jazz musicians in Paris, like people were not playing this kind of jazz in the seven, uh, in the 60s in Paris. But you also got to sure. think like what what's going to play in America. Yeah. Also, when they first say his name, I thought his name was Rambo. I'm not joking. And I was like, you're like, I can't take another one. I can't do it. <laughs> so look, the inciting event is that Wild Man Moore, which think hard about that name. Louis Armstrong is coming into town. He's a famous jazz uh, player of some instrument. Ram goes to the Ram goes to the train station. I think it's the triangle. <laughs> the triangle. Thank you. He's a famous triangle player. Dig that crazy triangle, man. <laughs> And uh, But when Ram's at the train station, he runs into Connie, Carol, and there's, like, some tension there. He invites her to see him at the club, and she's like, mm, no thanks. There is a joke about how white people all look alike. Okay, thank you. Again, and next to Joanne Woodward's hair, I actually do need to talk about this line for, like, 85 minutes because it's – she's she's being hot. He's being hot. He's so hot. And then – Talk, talk, talk. And then he goes, oh, is your your friend, is she as pretty as you are? And she goes, uh, yeah, she's white. And then he goes, oh, you know, all these white girls, they look the same. And I was like, and then I, it was weird because I was both like, do I get up on my feet or do I stand back down? Like, it was just a little bit, I wasn't sure if I should be like, yes, or no, 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 Newman. <laughs> That's a, a real strong vibe of the film. Uh, I think really throughout. So, uh, yeah, and and so he's invited them to the club, and Lillian, her friend, uh, the, the white friend, um, this fucking bonnet of a haircut. It looks like fake fluorescent hair was put atop her head, and she has to hold her head just so, so it doesn't fall off. I know. You'll see it in the trailer, guys. It's awful. But she insists on going to the club. So they go to the club and listen to some jazz. I wouldn't know. I didn't listen to it. <laughs> and leave the club. You want me to do my trumpet impression again to give you a... <laughs> In the early hours of the morning, they leave. And now this is a rich text because Ram follows him to the street. And he's like, Connie, want to go for breakfast? And she's like, excuse me? And then he gets mad about it. And Lillian makes him apologize and goes after him. No, no, no. Sorry. I really have to say Lillian does not – What care? What I, Connie says to her, why are you trying to make him apologize? That's it. Like, it's really Connie who incites the apology. Like, Lillian is like, well, I don't know. I mean, he's, <laughs> you t- you, what you meant was this, right? And Connie's like, bitch, what? <laughs> You're my best friend. Yeah. I, Connie really, yeah, she drives that train. Yeah, she does. And, like, there's there's just really complex tensions going on in this scene um, that I, when I, the first time I watched it, I was just uh, thinking about the characters. And the second time I was going, this is really interesting the way that, that the Carol character that Connie is very much like upholding, you know, virtue in this mm-hmm. context. And it's almost, I don't want to say that her character seems like she's forced to, it seems really organic to her character, but it, the film seems to be aware that it's playing against a script by making her that like, it's, I'd, I'd suggest watching it and trying to break it down for yourself. Well, I think it's an interesting thing about how very commercial movies can nevertheless get away with being really quite complicated in the early scenes in which you've got like a real complicated character dynamic in which like Paul Newman, uh, so Ram uh, really fancies Connie and Lily really, Lillian really fancies Ram uh, and Eddie is kind of caught in the middle of it. And it's all... Hey, I'm Sidney Poitier over here. <laughs> and it's all really complicated and like, you know, and in reality, it's the sort of like, you know, romance 
a square as opposed to triangle, uh, which uh, just would be almost impossible to resolve. But because this is a movie and because it needs to serve certain purposes in the next few scenes, like all of that like complexity to a certain degree dissolves and everybody goes off in their own. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. And so they couple off uh, entirely based on race. Like it doesn't seem like there's any other interest. Like uh, Lily and Aram get together. Connie and Eddie are walking around Paris. Lily and Aram are just straight up fucking. There's a whole subplot where Aram is trying to save this guy from a drug addiction. Point of the subplot is I think somebody was just like watching this film, like early rushes and just being like, other than the fact that he's played by Paul Newman, Ram is pretty unlikable. <laughs> well, also, Ram is supposed to be, like, every time he used what I imagined to be, like, hip slang of the time, I cringed. I mean, these actors are, like, our age, so. I know, but it never felt, and I say this as someone who's really, like, I do think Paul Newman's a good actor. You know, it, this is not. Just got to get hip to it, ma'am. When he, he, whenever he said, you dig, I was like, shut up, dad. Like, shut up. The problem is that he's, yeah, he's just a little bit too tense for the role. That's it. He's not really, that's, I, to me, that's not Newman's sweet spot as an actor. Like, he doesn't play, I don't know, like, the moments actually where he's with Gypsy slash Michelle and he's, like, standing up against drugs feel the most accurate to, like, who he is as a, like, the vibe that he gives across as an actor where. But also not the character who no, you feel oh, like would not. just be like, yeah, do your drugs, man. You just, yeah, exactly. You kind of feel like, oh, yeah, this is the verdict, right? Like, this is what's going to happen later on in Newman's career. But when he's like, yeah, I'm angry and I'm into music, it's like, Paul. But is he against the guy doing drugs because he likes the guy or because he realizes that he, the, that Michelle can play guitar like nobody else? And he just wants him to play because one big thing about Ram is what he really loves more than anything else in the world is the music. He loves that triangle, man. I think it's a little bit of both. Like I think I think they conflate the two passions. So I think it's supposed to be this is how we know Ram is a really good guy. He's a really good human, rather. And also, as a human, the way that he's able to interact with other humans is always through his love of music. And so the only way that he can genuinely connect with Michelle is to go, you're such a, you were such an amazing guitarist. Um, and also, I care about you, and I, can ter- I care about your skill, and I want to preserve that. Back to the love story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Connie and Eddie just kind of have intense conversations around Paris. Connie thinks it's important that she stay in America for the what I believe they referred to as the color problem in the movie. I don't remember how they call they They had a few weird... We- but, that but, might be James Baldwin still yeah, in my mind. But, but they definitely, yeah, they talk about it as being a problem. Basically, it's the civil rights fight. Exactly. But they don't discuss it in those terms. And she thinks it's really important that, uh, you know, the black community works together, you know, for rights. Whereas Eddie is thinking on a more individual level with a lot of the things we've talked about already on the pod this season, there's less discrimination in Paris. He can be seen as an artist rather than as a black artist or, you know, as a black man. Meanwhile, we find out Lillian's a single mother because you feel you really feel like Paul Newman was just like, mm, I did want to make movies about social issues. She's a single mother in a small town. She's trying to convince Ram that a relationship is possible. And Ram says, no, I cannot do my music in a small town. And he breaks up with her. Now, Eddie and Connie are in love, but Eddie doesn't want to go back to America, as we've established. They're really also like, I think that, and this kind of goes back to something that we've talked about a lot, um, which is the the quality in a movie where you just put two people together. I kept thinking about you, Chris, when I was watching it for that reason. (laughs) Assume that they're in love. Yeah. And there's a really interesting thing going on here because I think that Ram and Lillian's relationship, I don't buy it at all. But uh, even though they were married, like famously the most in love couple in the world in real life. That hair really came between them. Mm. But yeah, like, but... um, Eddie and uh, and Connie's relationship, like you really like, there's just there is just such a chemistry between the characters, or the 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 actors, and like th- that scene where they're sort of saying kind of like, wh- there's a moment where they've gone for a walk. I don't know which park of Paris they're in, and he's like, "Hey, I knew that life could be great, but I didn't know it could be this great." Because uh, you also rarely see Sidney Poitier super enthusiastic. Yeah. It's not really part of the range of the roles he was given. I think it also helps that they, <clears throat> that Sidney Poitier and Diane Carroll, they actually go outside and do other things. 
like basically with Ram and Lillian, they are in his apartment almost exclusively until the very end. I also think it's really interesting that with the white couple, you can have the white woman be in bed with the man the next day and it's okay. Yeah. But we really see resolutely that Diane, like that Connie, it seems like, you know, there is no sexual intercourse, right? And I think they, and I, and I, I think they do, I will say, I know that's not why. I, I know they didn't do it because of story reasons. There are obviously lots of other, for them, m- much more potent reasons, but I think they do a good job of folding it into who she is as a person. Like, of course, she's not going to come to Paris and 10 days in have a fling, right? Like, in terms of her values, in terms of who she is, that's not. No, she's, she a, she's a school teacher in training. Exactly, exactly. Like, she does have that kind of like quiet, I know what my morals are, you know, whatever that means for the time, et cetera. So basically, both of the women are just like, well, let's go home early, you know, as you do. Concierge. <laughs> yeah. Connie goes to the party to tell Eddie that she's leaving early. And he's like, you know what? No, I'm going to come to America. Meanwhile, Ram goes to a record producer <laughs> who is like. Ram has been. It's important to say that Ram throughout this thing has been working on a piece called Paris Blues. And it's the first time he's composed. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, and you you said that, and that he's composed this, and yeah, it, he's working. It was the, the first sentence, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in case I didn't, Ram's working on a piece called Paris Blues. <laughs> <laughs> now that's my observation. <laughs> and he goes to a record producer who's like, "Look, it's fine, but like maybe you have talent, maybe you don't. Like I don't know. Right. You're just gonna have to keep working." Which is like actually the most realistic part of this for me. Which is just like, yeah, this is okay. Along with Ram's reaction, frankly, because as a again as a viewer, I was thinking. Yeah, that's a fair, but I totally, I was thinking that if I was the one receiving that criticism, let's say for a piece of writing I had done, okay. I would have done the exact same thing as him. It's like, so I'm not good, is what you're saying. I mean, I'm, I'm fine with it, respectfully, but so I fucking suck and I should never write again. Sorry, is that what I, and that's what I'm hearing. So I should go be the stepfather to two children I've never met in small town America. Okay, I hear you. I hear you. Heard you loud and clear. And, and Renee is really like, the producer is like, no, no, I think you should just like take some time. He's like, uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Die. Yeah. yeah. That, uh, oh, okay. Uh, Anton Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, you really feel the method coming through there. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Lee Strasberg. Um, so the couples are saying goodbye at the train station. The men are going to like wrap up their stuff and mm-hmm. eventually join the women. But finally at the train station, Ram's just like, I love my music too much. <laughs> can't do it, Lillian. I can't do it. And he's like, um, just going to ship some boxes. See you in a month. And in the meantime, the billboard people are painting over Wild Man Moore's ad. Did it feel like to either of you a weird reversal of the scene in Casablanca where Ilsa um, doesn't come to the train station for Rick? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. The, this whole film, I was thinking, it's, it's a kind of like a, it, it is Casablanca redone. Right? It's weird. They're trying so hard. They try so hard. That's it. Because Lillian's waiting for a long time. Like, you know, like Eddie and Connie are being so cute by the train. She goes, no, go ahead, go ahead. I'll just wait for it. Maybe he got the platform wrong. And I actually really did think he was just going to stand her up completely. Oh, yeah, because Ram's the worst. Ram's the worst. But he does come and tell her, no, no, no I'm not coming. He does come to tell her he's the worst. <laughs> he announces to her. He's like, I really got because I, and I will say I preferred that to what I thought the ending was going to be with the after the meeting with the record producer, because the producer said something along the lines of maybe you need some time to think about what you really want. And I was like, oh, here we go. Ram's going to go to the U.S., be a fucking horrible stepdad and then be like, oh, but that experience really got me to understand what it means to for the Paris Blues. I appreciated that his growth is going to happen solo dolo. Don't bring Joanne Woodward into this. Correct. That's so true. That's so true. Also, point out, his apartment in Paris at this time has a telephone, and it has a television. So he is doing okay. I didn't even notice the television. I think he's got some of that parent money coming his way. Oh, Paris Greens. Is I believe what you're talking about? So I want to point out, this film was based on a novel, a 1957 novel by Harold Flender, who was a white man from New York. He uh, was a comedy writer, a jazz lover. He worked with Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, and Woody Allen. Then he did a documentary um, about how Denmark saved 8,000 Jews during the Holocaust. He won tons of awards, including from the Anti-Defamation League, a Writers Guild Award, and a Fulbright Scholarship. This was his first novel. And guess who the main couple is in the first novel? Um... Of the of the four people, right, that we see yep. in the movie? Pick two. Eddie and 
Fuck. It's Eddie and what's her face, isn't it? Lillian. No, I'm going to say Ram and Connie. Um, it is, I have here Eddie and Connie, but it was an interracial romance. Oh, so was Connie supposed to be white? I believe so. Or Eddie was supposed to be white, I guess. I believe so. I couldn't get a copy of this book in my hands fast enough. But United Artists, which was the company. Now, United Artists is a company I love. It was founded by in the 20s by Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, W.D.G. Griffith, and Charlie Chaplin, so that creatives could actually produce their own films. By this point, it's publicly owned. Uh, it's gone through a lot of hands. And they're worried that public opinion won't be on the side of an interracial couple. Um, critic Eve Goldberg actually did a comparison. She says that in the book, um, Eddie's friend is Benny, a middle-aged, paunchy Jewish sidekick. <laughs> and Connie's old maid roommate, Lillian, is converted into a young, attractive, divorced mother who's amazingly uninhibited. So basically... <laughs> and I, Hollywood knew what they were doing. <laughs> Make her hot. <laughs> I don't know if there's a love story between Benny and Lillian in the original book, um, but it doesn't sound like it. And it was even the, the first version of the script had the interracial romance. Uh, years later, Poitier said, Cold Feet maneuvered to have it twisted around, lining up the colored guy with the colored girl. He said that United Artists had chickened out and took the spark out of it. So mm. what do you think this movie would have been like if the couples had been reversed? If the actual tension between Carol and Newman had been allowed to play out and... Because I can kind of see Poitiers' slightly quieter charisma working really well with Woodward's slightly quieter charisma. I think in terms of actor pairings, it would have been really interesting and possibly quite successful. I just think the movie itself would have to change completely, right? Absolutely. I mean, you, you the, the whole motivation for Eddie going back to the U.S., which is not just uh, Connie in this film, but also Connie and what she represents, which is the, the civil rights fight, right. uh, would be a different thing. I do agree that Ram's just kind of unnecessary to the movie. <laughs> I think, though, I mean, if 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 it were, I mean, like this would be a kind of like a huge thing if if they were two um, two interracial couples. Um, I think that it could potentially have been a kind of like a, a really interesting movie in which you're exploring obviously ideas of like what it means to be a black man living in Paris and then a black woman coming from America to Paris and then having the two kind of like, you know, white protagonists as a way of, kind of as a reflection of that. And I think that movie could have, sp not to say that the movie doesn't speak to, anything broader than itself but i think in that situation i think it could have been like a potentially really interesting story right? yeah and you know what i was gonna say too that that to your point like I, I one of the things i found the most poignant in this movie even though i felt also that it was completely out of place in the movie simultaneously were the conversations between eddie and connie about what is my responsibility as a member of a marginalized community to go back and fight the fight versus a member of a marginalized community who wants to have a good life. Like, why don't I get to have that? And and I was – so at first I was thinking, oh, you don't want to lose that. But, Chris, actually, the more you, – what you were saying makes me think you could still have that and actually potentially have it be even more open and and raw because it wouldn't be – it wouldn't be two people who are supposed to be in love with each other, right? Then it's, oh, I'm with my man and your friend who's a fucking deadbeat and he's not even joining our community. Then it could actually be even potentially like a lot more – um, a lot more wounding, right? That conversation gets perhaps less poignant and more actively motivating in many ways. The nuance changes completely because right. the power dynamics have changed. Right. And I think that part of what the movie is trying to do um, with, with only some success is to show the way that Paris does change power dynamics at this time right. for different people, like for women, for example, even, you know, a small town white mother um, you know, can kind of just fuck around. That's I was going to say also, it is somewhat comical how, it's cute but comical, every single white French person we see in this movie, and granted, they're beyond side characters, right? They're so nice. I mean, they're so nice. They're sm Sometimes they're too nice. For example, at one point, 
Eddie and Connie are making out in this pagoda in some park. I'm going to assume Buchemel, maybe. It's so cold as well. I really felt for her bare legs, but moving on. Hey, it was really trying to sell Paris in the autumn, which is the... Um, <laughs> Bold move. The, the less popular season. And a, a man with a poodle comes up to them, stares at them and just says, continue, continue. And it's like supposed to be all nice and charming about how nice the locals are. But really, it just seems like he's like... I'd like a live sex show. That's it. Oh, it's so weird. And I understood because at some point um, Connie goes, wow, they just really go for it, right? Because we have kind of a montage of all these couples in Paris making out. She's like, they're just kissing out in the open. And that becomes kind of an entree for Cindy Poitier to go to like, and you know what? They don't kill black people. So, <laughs> you know. Uh, pros and cons. <laughs> this is a movie like of I, to sort of split up the things that we've covered in this podcast. This is a movie set very much in a fictional Paris. I think, like this is not a place that exists. This is an American idea of Paris, in which weirdly. Paris and France are supposed to represent individualism and like following your individual dream, whereas going to being in America is all about kind of commitment to either the family or the cause. Yes, famously a collectivist society. Yeah, but it's, it's very kind of the 50s image America wanted of itself, at least white America you know, wanted of itself mm -hmm. at this particular time. And I would say that well, I would have preferred to see the original screenplay produced um, based on some reviews of the book. I'm not sure America was ready for it. Mm. This is the Kirkus review of uh, the original Paris Blues uh, novel. Paris, hot jazz, and a small combination is muffled by the larger issue of racial racial bitterness, particularly in the case of Eddie Cook, Negro sax player, who has found the color line subdued by his years of chosen expatriation. I think they got paid by the letter. Seriously, yeah. Playing in Marie's cave and Marie's favorite lover on the side, although she has other men. So in this in the film, Marie is actually Ram's lover, mm -hmm. but. Um, Notably, a white, which a rich white count, Eddie begins to question his life, himself, and his aggressive anti-Americanism when he meets Connie, a schoolteacher, on a ten-week tour. He falls in love with Connie, chafes against the redirection of his life, but when released, decides to follow her homeward. Paris nightlife and a guided tour of the skin joints may lend a <laughs> Philip. I'm heading to a skin joint after this, by the way, guys. Say. <laughs> F-I-L-I-P. I've never heard this word before. F-I-L-I-P. A Philip? Maybe it's a typo um, <laughs> for a certain audience. But if the black and white theme lends a more serious intention, unfortunately, the characterization sticks to the same color scheme. So there's a lot of weirdness in this, in this review. And I don't want to take the time to unpack it, except that I think that uh, racial bitterness is a very loaded statement. Anti-Americanism. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we haven't read the book, so we still have issues with it. <laughs> yeah. So with all of that said, um, I do just want to wrap up by talking about the kind of image of Paris that we do get throughout this film, um, which is, I think we've already touched upon slightly. I will say that Newman and Woodward were not that excited about being in Paris. Apparently, during the shooting, they were so tired of French food that this is... <laughs> None of that barbecue sauce that you can add to it. Oh, do you know? This is, this is what IMDb trivia says. And it honestly makes no sense to me, which made me love it more. During shooting, Paul Newman and his wife, Joanne Woodward, got tired of French food restaurants. You know, those French food restaurants. <laughs> and searched backyards in deep winter to grill steaks. Were they searching? I mean, I, I guess they were searching for the grills. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Paris is not a place where... Grilled steak is uh, hard to find. I mean, like fried steak, I guess. I guess they just wanted that barbecue sauce. And then it added, the neighbors were aghast. I'm somehow not surprised that they were that basic about food. Oh, yeah. They, they, they were some basic bitches at this yeah. time. I mean, pretty. Don't get me wrong, but basic. Maybe this is what led them to create their salad dressing. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, Wait, hold on. It's a, I thought it was a barbecue sauce. 
No, it's a salad dressing. Oh, that's what that, that, that was. Oh, that was your joke. It made no sense to me. Oh, okay. It's a salad dressing. I thought, I yeah, I thought you knew the factoid, and you were like segueing it up. No, no, it's a it's a range of salad dressings, right? And the whole point was that I think there's a whole product line. He does okay without our help. You're right. I've actually never eaten it. Was... Let's talk about Paris. <laughs> so I'd like to point out a few of the sites in of Paris that we do see. We hit the biggies here. Mm-hmm. We've got the Arc de Triomphe, Sacré Cœur, mm-hmm. Montmartre. Uh, Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame, and the of course the Paris Bird Market, which was shut down in 1920, 1921, 2021, uh, because of concerns about cruelty that were, I think, entirely justified. And of course, we have the Bateau Mouche. Sorry, as a caveat, there is that weird line in the Paris Bird Market where Michelle says, birds are just like snakes, but they fly. <laughs> even weirder because he's like people usually say and i was like michelle (laughs) what do you mean (laughs) i think i think this is improv on the part of the actor being like how much will an american audience buy if this is a french saying so yeah so it's paris in autumn which is uh not paris in the springtime but we still love it second line love it yeah um (laughs) And I didn't really have anything. I thought it was just a really good encapsulation of kind of the playing the hits at this time. The same way that I felt the relationship between, because we've talked a lot about Black artists in Paris uh, this season. And I thought that maybe the one note that this pulled out that the other media that we've talked about hasn't was this idea that you were mentioning Naf of what does one owe to a community mm-hmm. what does it mean to be part of a community um and how does that you know how does the individual come into that can I and I just want to add on to that too that one of the things that weirdly moved me um but I'm also I'm easily, I'm easily moved um is at the end when Ram and Eddie they don't seem to tell their friends that they're leaving, right? They've been playing with this. They've been in Paris for five years, or at least Eddie has. They've been playing with this one jazz group. It seems like every night they're obviously very close. Um, and they come to this party, which is presumably going to be Rams last night. And he's like, hey, so I'm leaving. And It's a party in, I think, my favorite um, Paris interior that I've ever seen. I don't believe that it's a real place. I'm sure it's a studio. Chris has spent the, the rest of the week just trying to track down this place. It is actually true. Like it's it, it's a sort of top floor apartment, and then the the sort of the zinc rooftop is, is is like flat there with a like a little barrier, so it's been turned into a balcony, and there's like a wood burning stove in it. It just uh, it looks like a uh, chef's kiss it for is. a um. I agree. It's everyone's Paris dream, and he's there going yeah i'm gonna leave paris tomorrow to go to go to right to go to like a fucking small town but but it's it's odd because well there's obviously like a kind of a a paul cast across the well actually we don't know that that connie is from a small town we know that lillian is oh right you're right don't know how they know each other that's it it's never covered they're supposed to in the book it's apparent they're roommates but like lillian's like super old apparently but michelle is when when he realizes that ram is gonna leave it seems like Michelle's deeply affected and hurt that he wouldn't have told him. And it does seem really, it seems odd to me that for both of them, it's like, well, we're going to go. And even when Eddie says, like, I'm going to take some time, I can't leave right away. It doesn't seem like the people they've met there is is the connection that they're worried about losing. It really feels like, oh, I've got like, you know, my business stuff, my admin. I don't know. It seems odd because they've been there for a long time. They're so dedicated to living in Paris. But it seems like, to me at least, it read like they're dedicated to being American musicians in Paris as opposed to having any sort of allegiance to Paris or as opposed to having any sort of community within Paris. I think that this is a real failing of the movie is that there are so many relationships to explore in this short time and such complexities to the identity of certain characters. Mm -hmm. Like, I think Ram's pretty flat, although I've read a lot into him in terms of, like, parental money and, like, you know, whatever, however he got that piano, whatever. Exactly. He's also got a pretty cool apartment. Which I assume is on um, oh. Faubourg Saint Denis. <laughs> Faubourg Saint Denis. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Chris is just going to go off with his real estate fetish. Now we're going to continue okay. talking about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think we don't really get an understanding of the relationships in terms of what they find appealing mm-hmm. about each other. I mean, and 
even Eddie and Ram, frankly. That's it. And at this point, I've been in Paris this time for five years. Like, you guys are my artistic community. Mm-hmm. Like, can you imagine if I just showed up at a party and was like, oh, so like, I'm going to go for good for like some tourist I'm- who's been here for 10 days. You guys would have, have an intervention for me. I'm not even being cute. I'd be fo- so fucking pissed at you. I think you would actually question like my grip on reality. Yeah, I'd be furious and also question your, like, <laughs> I'd be so mad at you and tell you and also question your sanity. What about the podcast, Rachel? <laughs> well, Chris will always have Paris. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for our favorite segment, Mary Fuck Kill. For the final Mary Fuck Kill of the season, I've come up with some deliciously difficult choices, I believe. Deliciously difficult. Your choices are Joanne Woodward's haircut. Oh, okay. Ram's personality. Oh, God. And the mediocre score of Paris Blues, the Ram composition, not the soundtrack. I'm sorry, to quote myself, kill, 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 kill. Yeah, this is a, a rare example where I kind of agree with Nafkote. This is killity kill 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 clock. Like uh-huh. <laughs> that's why it's a game. <laughs> okay, let's really okay. Okay, we have to say okay, Joanne Woodward's haircut. Oh god, I can't even call it a haircut. Okay, the mop that is put atop Joanne Woodward's head, Ram's quote unquote personality, and the music of Paris Blues. Not the music of the movie. The the oh. score that, that Ram writes that he's like, it's kind of mediocre. Rachel Gadam Kapelki Dale, how dare you? Chris, do you see me looking at you in anguish? I'm 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 lost. I mean, all right. I, I think I'm ready to give an answer. Okay. But uh it's a grudging one. Okay, okay. It was always going to be. Okay. Um Ram's personality. He's an arsehole. He's gotta go. He's uh I'm killing Ram's. <gasps> Okay, because that leaves the wig, but okay. Yeah. yeah, once you kill Ram's personality, you've just got Paul Newman's body and, hey, everybody wins. Listen, when they had that extended shirtless scene, I was like, okay, 1960s, okay. Hey, hey, director, you know what you're doing. Okay, Martin, okay. So, yeah, Ram's personality is is gone because, I mean, just the the whole sort of, like, tortured artist shtick um i like everything everything about him is just uh, it's fine at least i would say he knows that he's better off if he keeps to himself that's a safe right he's like he's he's like no i i shouldn't be around other people right and and usually we discourage people from thinking that in ram's case we're like oh no you're right (laughs) (laughs) um jesus though this is tricky um so i will let's say can't even say it. <laughs> Fuck the wig. Excuse me. I don't know why, though. Um, me neither. Chris, take take a breath. Do you want an aspirin? I feel like you're not well. I feel like you're not well. I think I just... The thing is, it's, it's a little bit of an, a, proce- a process of elimination in the... I think the thing that I like the most out of the three of them is the the score Paris Blues, which I don't love particularly. I thought I really thought you were going to say her hair, and I I almost I, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. I I, I think that there there could be something interesting in kind of getting to know that score and enjoying it and spending the rest of my life with it. <laughs> I guess. And so, weirdly for me, as a process of elimination, I'm gonna fuck the wig. <laughs> I've never, I've never processed of elimination the fuck before, but it's a. Um... I think you probably have. <laughs> that sounded like a an insult about your real life. I just meant I think that there's been a time in this game that you have before. Okay, I. I'm also going to marry Paris Blues because it's mediocre with potential for greatness. Inoffensive. I I mean, the the record producer did seem like a little offended by it. Right, but you bring Paris Blues to a little cocktail party. Yeah, no one's going to talk to them, but you give them a a juice or a milk as they have in this movie. They have milk, they have milk a bunch at the bar. <laughs> Room temperature milk. And so that just tells you how bad I do think that these options are because, uh, again, I fast forwarded all the jazz scenes. <laughs> And so I spend my life married to something that I wished I could fast forward to. That's a lot of married couples. 
Um, I'll hate fuck Ram's personality. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just the one time. I feel like I've got enough passion mm-hmm. in that hatred mm-hmm. that I could make it uh, good, and then it would be over. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, that that haircut, it's 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 getting murdered. Yeah. It's getting murdered. Somebody hated her. They went after her with a pair of scissors, and um, I think that's. All there is to say about it, I never want to see it again, needs to be erased from the earth. I am 100% in alignment with you, Rachel. I am the killer of this hair. I would happily go and turn myself in, and I know I would be acquitted on account of self-defense. I know that no court in this world, you could take me to The Hague, and they'd be like, but but, but that was living here, and I would show them a photo of it, and the whole court would go, <gasps> and you'd hold it up and you'd say, I did it, and i do it again. This is the real hate crime. And honestly, I think that people would ri- literally rise up out of their seats. And I, I don't know, maybe there'd be flags to my name face on it just drawn really quickly in permanent marker this is the first movie i'd ever seen joanne woodward in and she is lucky that i googled her oh because she is stunning so the problem is i've seen another movie so i know her hair doesn't have to be this way i know her hair doesn't have to be this way you can look at that picture and tell it doesn't have to be this way it's thick it's naturally like white blonde women would pay millions of dollars to have that color and thickness and texture and somebody just went after it with a chainsaw is there any chance that the wig is an artistic choice to, to make her uglier i don't know like i mean does the is, does the wig symbolize something do you know what i was thinking when you said that i was like could someone check real quick to see if she played friar tuck after this like what artistic choice she was because she was simultaneously on broadway as friar tuck as joan of arc uh. was the picnic about i don't know an abbey? I don't understand. Oh, no, I, um, I, my understanding is lighter than that, but oh, I don't know. Fair. Um, yeah, so definitely kill the hair. Um, yeah, marry Paris Blues. As I was saying before, why not, right? Like, it's not... So here's the thing about marrying Paris Blues. I never... <sighs> follow me. I felt a little bit about Paris Blues, the song, as I did about Ed Sheeran's entire discography, which is to say that when I listen to it, I'm not mad. Two seconds later, if you played the same song for me again, I'd be like, oh, who's this? And you'd go, Ed Sheeran slash Paris Blues. I'd be like, oh, my God, I've never heard it before. And then you'd go, we just listened to it. I'd be like, that's crazy. You, I could not hum a bar. We could do that on a loop for hours, and I, it would never get old for me. For you, it would, but for me, it would not. Constantly surprising. There, there you go. Constantly, tepidly. More like constantly ambient. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like elevator music that doesn't annoy me. It's there, and I go, oh. But you can still have a good life with it. Sure. Like with that hair. Possible. Or with that personality. And Ram's personality, I'm ashamed to say, slash, it's my truth. Um, I have fucked Ram's personality before. <laughs> on more than one occasion. And you know what? Yeah. There were there were cons. There were big, big cons. There were, I mean, not pros. But here I am today on this podcast living it up. So it didn't kill me. So... Resounding, yeah, I'll fuck it. <laughs> and there it is. And I think that this just goes to show you guys how hard it is to come up with a truly equitable Mary Fuck Kill <laughs> because I knew that I was going to do the hair and the personality. But honestly, there's nothing else in this movie quite as bad as either of those things. So, you know, you can always tell when we pick one thing to marry or kill, there's a real inequality. One of these things is not like the other. Mm -hmm. Signing off from Paris, this is Joanne Woodward's haircut. (laughs) 